Section 3 of David and His Friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David and His Friends, a series of revival sermons by Louis Albert Banks. A Certain Prescription for Happiness. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. There is a very beautiful story told of a king who, when he came to his throne, a young man had a silver bell made and placed in a high tower of his palace. Then the announcement was sent forth that whenever the king was happy, his subjects would know it by the ringing of the spell. It was never to be rung except when the king was perfectly happy, and then by no hand but his own. Day after day, the people listened for the sound of the silver bell, but it did not ring. Days passed into weeks, and weeks into months, and the months into years, but no sound of the bell rang out neither day or night to tell that the king was happy. At last, the king grown old and gray in his palace, lay on his deathbed. His weeping subjects gathered around him, and he learned how through all the years his people had loved him. And then he was happy, and in his joy, with dying hands, he rang out the silver bell. How many years of wasted happiness, because the king did not come to know and appreciate the love of his people. The little story may suggest to us a still greater loss in ourselves. Only the consciousness of God's love can make us perfectly happy. Many people go through life from childhood to youth, from youth to manhood, from manhood to age, and the lines of care deepen in their faces, and the silver bell of happiness never rings out because all the while they are getting farther from God and there is no consciousness of that divine love which alone can give perfect happiness and peace to the human heart. We have in this psalm the thought of a keen-brained and spiritually instructed man as to what is required to make a happy man. We have here the testimony of a man of broad experience. Surely it is a good thing to have a certain prescription for happiness, and we cannot do better than to study it earnestly. David sets forth at the beginning that there are three things which it is important that we shall not do if we are to lead happy lives. The first of these is walking in the counsel of the ungodly. I do not understand that he intended to teach that to come under this head. It is necessary for a man to seek out ungodly people and ask their advice as to how he shall live. 
Very few people would be tempted to do that at first. The danger is far more insidious than that. The trouble is that ungodly people are always ready to speak their counsels of evil and lead others astray by them. Eve did not send for the devil to come and advise her, but he came of his own accord and spit forth his lying sophistries about the Lord. Many young men and women come to the city from Christian homes expecting to live a frank Christian life here, but in the boarding house or the store or shop where they work, they are thrown into touch with ungodly and wicked people who are ready at every turn with skeptical and insinuating remarks about the church and about Christianity. Their counsels are for laxity of faith and conduct. A broken-hearted young woman came to me the other morning and with sobs and tears told of the loss of her religious experience and of her happiness because in the boarding house where she lived, she had listened to the counsels of godless and wicked people. And only this week, a young man told me he came to the city a Christian and confidently expected to become identified with the Christian life of the city. But he made the great blunder of not at once uniting with the church and thus showing his colors. He thought he would wait a little and go about and see the different churches. But while he was drifting around, the counsels of the ungodly among his associates were undermining his religious fidelity, and almost before he knew it, he had been swept into sin. Dr. W. L. Rathmason, in a recent sermon, recalls the fact that while we are careful to do our utmost to protect great buildings from fire and tempest, yet all the while those buildings are liable to another peril, certainly not less severe, the subtle decay of the very framework of the structure itself. The tissue of the wood silently and mysteriously deteriorates, and a calamity dire as a conflagration is precipitated. The whole of the magnificent roofing of the Church of St. Paul outside the walls of Rome had to be taken out at an enormous expense because dry rot developed. Scientific men have discovered that this is caused by an obscure malign vegetation that goes on in the heart of the wood, destroying the strength and glory of cathedral and palace. David indicates in this psalm that character is liable to a similar danger. In our religious experience, as in our homes, moth and rust destroy more frequently than thieves break through and steal. Many people think they are all right because they are not committing outbreaking sins, while the counsels to which they are listening and the associations to which they are lending themselves are really undermining all their spiritual strength. David indicates in this psalm that character is liable to a similar danger. In our religious experience, as in our homes, moth and rust destroy more frequently than thieves break through and steal. Many people think they are all right because they are not committing outbreaking sins, while the counsels to which they are listening and the associations to which they are lending themselves are really undermining all their spiritual strength. The fiber of will and conscience and feeling is secretly eaten away, and someday they awake to find they no longer possess the faith, 
the sensibility and the resolution of other days. No swift and violent assault of world or flesh or devil has torn or stained them, but it has been like a moth fretting a garment. They go on with their routine life. They give place to dullness, deadness, indifference, and all the while obscure germs of weakness and disease spring up within and consume their moral fiber. Then, one day, a sudden temptation occurs, a severe emergency, and they fall into a condemnation that surprises and startles them as much as it does others. In the physical world, sunshine is the sure antidote to the dry rot. So the only antidote to the counsels of the ungodly is to turn from them to the beams which fall from the sun of righteousness. Happiness does not lie in the counsels of the ungodly, but in fellowship with the children of the light. Another place that the happy man must avoid is the way of sinners. In Isaiah's prophecy, God gives it as one of the first things to do when a man will turn from wickedness to righteousness and from sorrow to happiness to get out of the way in which he has been going. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. The way of sinners is the way of sorrow and unhappiness. Whatever of good it promises, it is a false way. It may seem attractive, but you may be sure that the end of the way is misery. The other day in New York City, there was an auction sale by a railroad company of a quantity of unclaimed chests, releases, and parcels. Some of these packages brought large prices. Many of them sold for a great many times their worth. The fiercest bidding was over a prosperous-looking trunk. It was strongly made, and although not very heavy, the speculators who examined its exterior concluded that it contained articles of value. One of them finally secured it for $55 and promptly pried it open when he found within it only a disjointed human skeleton, which had probably been the property of some medical student. It is easy to understand the chagrin of the purchaser who, instead of gold and jewels, found only these relics of death. Multitudes have experienced a similar disappointment, but one infinitely more sorrowful when they have discovered the real nature of the prizes which they gained by sin. The wise Solomon, speaking of the false promises which sin makes, and of the assurances of the wicked that stolen waters are sweet, and that secret sins are pleasant, declares of him who is deceived, he knoweth not that the dead are there. I know I speak to some tonight who have been standing in the way of sinners at a fearful cost. The pleasure has vanished, but the skeleton remains. There is still another place that a man, if he will be really happy, must avoid, and that is the seat of the scornful. You will notice this evolution in sin, this going down the three steps. The first is the listening to the counsel of the ungodly, until, it may be almost unconsciously, you begin to walk in that counsel. The next step lower is where a man begins to stand in the way of sinners, and the third and worst of all is where he sits down in the seat of the scornful. God have mercy on the man who has already taken the third degree in sin, 
who not only walks in the counsel of the ungodly and stands in the way of sinners, but sits in the seat of the scorners. God have mercy on the boy who has gone so far that he can make a joke of his mother's religion, that he can make a sneer about his father's God, that he can scorn the voice of God's word that calls him to repentance. The sarcasm and cynicism and scorn of a sharp wit is often very fascinating to young people, but I assure you that the man who exercises it is never happy. It is a blossom which grows on a tree that is bitter at the heart. I have seen many scornful men and women, but I have never yet seen one who was happy. Well, we have been looking at some of the things one must not do if he is to be happy. Let us turn to the brightest side and see what one may do to ensure happiness. The prescription is given here and is very plain. A child can understand and obey it, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. But, you say, how can I delight in the law of the Lord, and how can I begin to think about him if I am taken up with other things? It is all very simple. You have been breaking God's law, and therefore you cannot delight in it. Stop breaking it. Stop now. Stop this very hour. Do not go another step that way. Turn right about and begin to obey the law of the Lord, and then you will have a chance to delight in it. God has made happiness and obedience to go together. As you obey the Lord, and as you feel the warmth of his smile on your face, you will take delight in him. All this is perfectly natural. The man who has committed a crime and has broken the law of the land and is fleeing from justice like a hunted animal, or has been caught and is being punished, takes no delight in that law. But the man who obeys the law and finds a strong arm of protection thrown around him and rejoices in its security, delights in it, and in the consciousness of the presence of the law, he finds rest and peace. So, as long as you sin against God and feel the rebuke of your conscience, and are haunted by the impending doom which your sin must bring upon you, you have only fear and terror about the law of God. But when you turn from your sins and cease to break God's law, and through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, your past sins are forgiven, and you feel that you are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the law of God becomes a source of protection to you, and you take a new delight in God's strength and power and wisdom, and rejoice with Paul in the assurance that all things work together for good to them that love God. And what a glorious result is assured from such delights in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What a beautiful picture that is. Ah, but you say, does God live up to that? Do not many Christians have hard experiences and trying difficulties like other people? Certainly the hot sun beats down on the tree planted by the river, 
just the same as it does on the one that is planted on the gravelly, sandy upland. But the one by the river runs its roots down into the refreshing streams beneath. And when the upland tree withers and turns brown, the tree by the river is as green as ever. Christians meet the troubles of life like other people, but if they give themselves up wholeheartedly to do God's will and delight in the law of the Lord, they have peace and content in the midst of the sorest trouble that can come upon them. I read you this evening the story of Philip, who was taken up suddenly by the Spirit at a time of great prosperity with him and sent on a mission into the desert. But Philip went obediently and found there, driving along in his chariot, a nobleman who was trying to read the prophecies but did not understand them. And Philip found himself in the nick of time to give him just the help he needed in order to win him to Christ. God sent him into the desert, but he gave him a chariot to ride in and a prince for a traveling companion. He had far more honor paid him in the desert than he had found in the city in his greatest prosperity. Mark Guy Pierce, the English preacher, commenting on this experience of Philip, says that is the way God always treats his children. The moment we set foot in the wilderness at God's bidding, we are the Lord's guests, and he ever keeps his table royally furnished. When the Lord led the hosts of Israel into the wilderness, they cried out against Moses and said, You have brought us forth to kill us of hunger. But instead of the muddy water of the Nile, God gave them clear, cool streams out of the rock. And instead of the onions and scanty crusts of Egypt, he gave them delicious and abundant manna. God led Elijah away into the wilderness but he did not forget him. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. Another time Elijah was in the desert, and this time his own cowardice brought him there, and he cried out to God that he might die. But the Lord had mercy on him and sent an angel to wait upon him. And when he awoke out of slumber, behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. The multitude followed Jesus into the desert, but the master fed them until they were filled. Yes, the Christian has his troubles like other people, but he has help that other people do not have. God is with him. He has the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He can go to God in prayer and find the peace which passeth all understanding. The peace that casteth out all fear. You want happiness. There is only one certain prescription for happiness, and that is to obey God. Do the duty that is next to your hand. Christ says, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be true. And he has assured us that it is his will that we should confess him before men. Begin to obey Christ now, and in obedience you shall find happiness. End of section three. Read by 
Yolanda K. Descartes, New York, July 19, 2021.